G'day and welcome to the Cultivate Farms podcast. Sam Marwood here and thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. We're thinking of as many ways to get you onto your farm or help you to step back and we really hope you find all this information useful and inspiring. Let's get you farming. G'day everybody, Sam Marwood here from Cultivate Farms and again I have the pleasure of interviewing a legend in the agriculture industry, uh, I always like making you smile as well, but he is Terry McCosker from RCS. Terry, welcome again uh, to another chat. Thanks Sam, always uh, happy to have a chat. Well, we uh, we spoke, hopefully people watched our first uh, interview and it went so well, we had so much great feedback that, uh, and I enjoyed it so much and I uh, selfishly asked Terry to for another chat around more topics and uh, he said yes, which is brilliant and I know this is going to be some great content uh, for everyone in the agriculture industry across the country and uh, aim is to get these ideas and knowledge out of Terry's head and share them with, with you guys and we've got a range of topics that we're going to unpack uh, and we may not get through everything uh, in these discussions but uh, we'll, we'll keep going and, until we get everything out of Terry's head and into your head. That's my goal. Uh, so Terry, thank you very much, mate. Look, we've got a few things we'll talk about. Soils, we're going to talk about risks in farming uh, and then move on to people around uh, the best farmers, aspiring farmers, retiring farmers and unpack concepts all around there. But first of all, I want to kick off around soils uh, and I grew up on a, a farm, Terry, but we didn't really talk about soils much when I was growing up. And uh, and over the last four years, starting cultivate farms, it's a it's a, I've noticed it's a hot topic in the ag industry now. This soil health, soil carbon, uh, and unpacking all of that. But it feels like uh, soils are a big player. Um, would you say soils are the number one thing to think about as a farmer? Uh, and if so, what why? I, I, it's absolutely the number one uh, thing to think about. Uh, probably the best story I've got around that was a very long-term uh, client and friend of ours who um, said when he first did uh, grazing for profit, he, he learned that he wasn't actually a livestock farmer, that he was actually a grass farmer. Uh, but then he said a few years after that that he learned that he wasn't even a grass farmer, he was actually a soil farmer. And I think that sums it up pretty well, that when you really think about it, everything that we can produce starts with the soil and soil health. So if we can't hold water in the soil, if we can't recycle minerals in the soil, if we don't have the biology to feed the plants in the soil, then the plants are sick. We end up with diseases. We end up with insects in our plants. Um, we'll end up with unhealthy animals and low productivity, and we'll end up with unhealthy people. And... Uh, you know, there's some really alarming trends in human health now emerging since about the mid-90s uh, globally. So I think, you know, it, it all starts with the soil. Um, and so I think that there's a lot we can actually do about soils. And I, I think one of the most alarming things that I've seen recently uh, when I was in southern New South Wales and... Uh, while we were having lunch, there was somewhere between 11 and 20 mils of rain. And then it was in a short, sharp sort of shower. And, and then we drove for 45 minutes out to a property. And every dam we drove past for 45 minutes was by washing after 11 mils of rain. And when we drove back in the afternoon on the flat country, water was still sitting on the surface. Now, that 
that country looked like a big cloud because it was in drought. Now, if 11 mils of rain doesn't go into your soil, then your drought is not caused by lack of rain. And I think um, it, w it was a stark reminder to me that, that five and 10 inches of rain in that country is not gonna break the drought, it's mm -hmm. not gonna go in. And, and when they get heavy falls of rain, they're just gonna lose more soil. So we've actually got, and, and that's a big issue, not just in southern New South Wales, but I think New South Wales is one of the worst states. Um, but it's very significant. And if we can't get water into the soil, then you can't break a drought. So uh, it, it all starts with the soil. So you think, so farmers are missing out. Is that the way you, you feel about it? Is that they're, they're missing out on this uh, water um, soaking in and and just all the and the soil doing the work for them is 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 that how you see it that there's these benefits that we're just not really grasping? Yeah, I think our soils have been abused for so long that they've nearly given up. And if you can't get air and you can't get water into a soil, um, then there's not much you can do with it. And it doesn't really matter how much rain you get, you're going to have a drought. And um, you know, you get two inches of rain and you're five minutes away from the next drought. Mm. Um, whereas a farm where that water goes in, and that was the farm we were driving to, um, the water came off the neighbouring farms, filled their dam, and went about 50 metres into their paddocks and completely disappeared. The, the country had grass cover, and the soil just went straight into the, the water, rather, went straight into the soil. Now, they're making money out of that rain, and everyone else just sent it down the drains, mm. the, you know, and, and their soil with it. Um, it's a disgrace, quite frankly, because it's, uh, I think it's our national estate. Um, and, and I take an Aboriginal view of land. I, I don't believe we ever own land. We're only custodians of it for a very, very short period of time. And I don't like the way a lot of people are being custodians at the moment. Mm. Well, let's say you were driving past one of those properties and all of a sudden you were custodian of of one of those ones where the water was just flowing off or sitting there not going anywhere. What are the, if you got three things you would do right away, what's, what is it that uh, a farmer should do to start reversing that trend and getting that and taking advantage of that, that water and, and building their soil health? Well, I think the first thing I do is try and get some plants growing. Um, what a lot of people will want to do is go out and rip it up and break up the the capping and the crusting and the, the compaction in those paddocks. Now, unless you change the management that created that, that symptom treating. So what I would probably do is, is get out there with, uh, with a tined implement and get multi-species uh, plant communities going, now, whether that's multi-species pasture, multi-species cover crop, multi-species crops, I don't really care, but what we need to do is get root systems in um, and if you use a tine implement, you're going to get water in, you're going to get air in, and that uh, will feed, feed some biology, which needs to feed the plants. Um, and we've got to get some biodiversity back into the system in both in terms of plant community and biological community within the soil. Um, I think that's the first thing. The second thing then is to treat the symptom that caused it in the first place. For a lot of that, it was overstocking and overgrazing. Um, so overgrazing is when you come back and graze a plant too frequently and it doesn't get any rest, and overstocking where you've got too many animals on a place for too long. Uh, and I think, and then in the cropping systems, uh, we've got no ground cover left. Um, 
uh, not been not enough yield grown or uh, all the ground cover's been eaten off by sheep or whatever. Um, so there's nothing there to slow that water down. Um, I got a photograph yesterday sent to me from a, from a farmer in Victoria um, and in, they had 80 mils of rain in about two hours and that's the first that only had 20 mils of rain for the whole year up to that. And uh, that just took the topsoil off. So you could see that um, straight away that soil is now just down to subsoil. Um, and then you've got years and years and years of work to try and rebuild some topsoil again. Um, and that's what's likely to happen if we get a break in the season now uh, with heavy rain. It's going to take soil with it. So is, is the outcome, and I've heard this before a few times, Terry, and not, I'm not an expert, is it, it, the idea is having green for all year round? Is that the, is the, 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 the core of what this concept is? And, and that, I assume, means you've got um, grass which is, or, or vegetation which is uh, bringing nutrients down. It's helping to break the soil apart and just constantly doing that. And, and I think tied in that is, this, uh, is soil carbon and carbon um, you know, sequestration into the soil, which I understand is great for the microbes, etc. So is the core of it, keeping grass 100% of the year, leads to all these other benefits. Is that is that what you're getting at? Well, yeah, whether it be grass or whether it be crops, but we've got to keep living uh, plant material on there for as long as there's moisture. And when we don't treat the soil well, our moisture either doesn't get in or doesn't last very long because there's no sponge there. Mm -hmm. The carbon is the sponge that holds water. And it also cycles nutrients. So we've, what we've got to do in these soils now is rebuild carbon. Uh, we've lost a lot of it through overgrazing, overstocking and uh, over farming uh, and ploughing over a long period of time. And it hasn't happened overnight. It's taken 100 odd years, 150 years to create that. Um, fortunately, Mother Nature is very, very forgiving and we can recreate those soils quite fast, much faster than many people believe. Um, you know, when I was learning about soils half a century ago, um, we were told that it would take 10,000 years to grow an inch of soil. Um, it's not right. We can actually grow an inch of soil in a matter of a couple of years with the right processes and programs. And, and that's what we've got to do. We've actually got to start growing soils again. And carbon is the, the absolute critical component in all of this. Um, and it gets into the soil from the sugars that a plant produces during photosynthesis. And it's the liquid carbon pathway that Christine Jones is so aptly named. And those, so about 40 to 50% of the sugar that a plant produces during photosynthesis is actually sent down into the root system to feed the soil biology. It, then the biology, particularly the mycorrhizal fungi, starts to convert that um, sugar into a stable form of carbon carbon in the, in the form of glomalin. And glomalin then is what aggregates your soil. So it takes the fine soil particles and pulls them together um, into aggregates that might be the size of a match head, for example. And when you have a beautifully aggregated soil, then you've got a lot of room in there for air and water. And that lets water in and it also holds the soil together. So when one of the signs that we have very poor biology in our soils now is we're getting a lot of wind erosion. And wind erosion is caused by the fact that we've got no aggregation. We've got no aggregation because we've got no biology. 
and we're doing a lot of things to kill biology in our systems. Um, the use of phosphate, the, the um, salt-based phosphate fertilisers, for example, takes out 30 to 70 percent of the mycorrhizal fungi, which is there to feed the plant phosphorus. Uh, it's just, um, and there's so many things that we do. Uh, so my view now in terms of healing country, the first thing is firstly do no harm. And that means no harm to soil biology because without that soil biology, nothing else is going to work. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and that's what I'm. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing more and more, Terry. It's, it's really, really interesting. And and from a practical level around this as well. So it's around this cover you talked about and all those benefits you just talked about then. But it's it's this predicting and uh, planning forward. That it feels like is a key part of this is that you don't want to overgraze as you talked about, and you want to get the cattle off. Uh, and sometimes you might be taking the, the livestock off or whatever you're doing uh, uh, sooner than what like conventionally we, we would be thinking about. So it looks like there's a lot of feed just sitting in the paddock. Um, but it, can you unpack that that uh, planning? H- how do you go about that planning when to get livestock on and off? I'm, I'm assuming there's all these models and techniques you've got um, to help people work through work through that 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 thinking. Yeah. So again, it comes back to the soil and. Uh, and that and its water holding capacity. So what we've developed uh, over the last 30 years is a very simple water balance model, and we use a grazing chart to work out what's going on in the soil. So essentially, the feed you've got in the paddock today is a result of the last 12 months' rainfall, and in a month's time, it's a result of the last 12 months' rainfall, and in six months' time, it's a result of the last 12 months' rainfall. So basically, at the end of every month, you've got 12 months rainfall behind you. Now, if you're plotting that every month, you will see either a, a decline or a flattening or an increase in that running total of rainfall. So if you're on a, in a 600 mil rainfall area, for example, and um, your running total is sitting on 400 mils, um, then you cannot run the same number of animals that you would have run if you'd had 600 mils as a running total of rainfall. And, and the more we degrade the soils, the less we're going to be able to run for the same rainfall. And as we improve those soils and get more carbon in it, the more animals and the more productivity we get for the same rainfall. Um, so the, the grazing chart actually plots that running total of rainfall and then it plots it against the running total of livestock carried. So we work in terms of stock days of feed removed over that 12 months. And when you compare stock days of feed removed to stock days per hectare of rainfall um, over the 12-month period, it's very easy then to compare stocking rate to carry capacity. Um, So, for example, we use a long-term history to calculate carrying capacity. Uh, So let's take New South Wales or Victoria. You might be running... 300 or 400 BSE days per hectare um, per 100 mils of rain could be your carrying capacity. So the goal then is to run your stocking rate plus or minus 10% around that 400 DDHs per 100 mils. So it's actually a quite a, a, it's a predictive tool. We can predict six months ahead and say, well, what happens if we get no rainfall? What happens if we get median rainfall? What happens if we get average rainfall? And we can actually predict forward what that soil water balance model is going to look like based on how many animals we've carried for the last 12 months, how much feed's already been consumed. And 
So if we've got a, a benchmark carrying capacity that's, say, 400 for DC days per hectare per 100 mils, and I take my stocking rate to 500 DC days per hectare per 100 mils, I'm now in debt. And that gap above that is a debt taken from the ecosystem. And I'm either using stubble or I'm using feed that I shouldn't be using that should be there for the ants and the spiders and the insects and the birds and everything else that helps that soil and that ecosystem work. So I'm in debt. It's, it's actually like going into overdraft. And it has to be paid back. A lot of problem for our soils is it never gets paid back. And so what, what you see happening now in some, some instances, people are keeping animals on right through this drought and feeding them. So then two things happen. One is your bank balance gets drained, your soil resource gets drained, your people resource gets drained, and you still get low animal production. So you've basically got four primary resources that we've got to look after. And when it comes to drought, my view is that um, <coughs> you've got to manage drought so only one of those four resources actually has a cost to it. So there's always a cost in a drought, and that cost is going to be, as, as an absolute minimum, it'll be financial. What we've got to do is stop it being an ecological cost. In other words, it drains our landscape and destroys it. We've got to stop it being a cost to livestock so they get poor and die and all of those sort of stupid things. Um, and we don't want it to be a cost to people. We don't want people to be stressed and worried and so on. Um, so a drought will affect your bank balance. Mm. But somebody that's managing drought well will restrict that loss in a drought to the bank balance and not sacrifice anything else. And using that grazing chart and that tool of knowing where your carrying capacity is relative to rainfall and knowing what your stocking rate is every day of the year relative to rainfall, and then you can actually manage those two things really well. It sounds great. And I've got my, my head around that a bit more. I think the, the biggest barrier is thinking this is just so complex. Uh, but I'm sure, Terry, once you get stuck into this, it's it becomes second nature and it's not it's not it's like anything. You get used to it and uh, you can work work through it more easily. It is not rocket science. If you sit down for two hours, you can work out how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, you can get software to do it for you. So there's the Maya grazing chart, for mm -hmm. example, which um, does all of these calculations for you. All you've got to do is enter the information on your phone every day about where your animals are and put your rainfall into it. <clears throat> and put it in your purchases and sales and you've got all your livestock records and you're able to plot your stocking rate to your carrying capacity continuously. Um, and that's where we need to get to. Like, to me, it's I don't know how you would actually manage a livestock property without a grazing chart and do it effectively. Um, you're just guessing mm. if you don't uh, have that. And it's a very, very simple tool. Well, Terry, I want to move on to, we talked about there with soils around risks, and I think soils are probably a key part of risk mitigation, but in the ag industry you hear about and, uh, in, and what we talk about when getting young people onto farms, people say farming is an agriculture so risky, uh, you've got to be alert to those risks. I would love to unpack in your mind what you think people, uh, what, what are the risks in, in farming and agriculture, but I'd love to get your, your spin on how we can mitigate 
these these risks and, and and so people can be confidently go into these and say yeah of course there, there are risks in, in farming but I know what they are and I hear my systems to mitigate those risks you're never going to get rid of them uh, but I'd love to get your thoughts on what are those what are those uh, things that a farmer should be on top of to help mitigate and and is that I reckon I know what your answer is going to be but is that centered around soil health as well but what are the other risks that we should be should be thinking about as a farmer? Well, I think there's two risks that relate to soil health, and the other big one, of course, is price fluctuation. So I'll talk about price first because that's one that most people get hung up on. Yep, it's a very, very simple one to address. Um, in any commodity, at any point in time, you know the variation in price received. So it's pretty easy to take the last 10 years, sheep prices, cattle prices, grain prices, whatever it is you're producing, and just plot what the price has been on a monthly basis or whatever you like, weekly, whatever. And what you'll find is that the prices work within a range. So it goes up and down generally within that range. Sometimes, uh, as we've seen in the last few years with cattle prices and with protein prices generally, we've gone on to another range. But there's a new range established higher than the old one. But it will still be a range. So we know pretty well, like with a quite a high degree of certainty, where prices are going to be. They'll be within two, the high and the low. Um, what you don't know is when they're going to be there. But there's a very, very simple way to protect yourself from that so that you always make a profit. So if you're... Let's say your cost of production uh, on wheat, take an example, is $200 a tonne. And the price of wheat falls below $200 a tonne, you're going to lose money. But if your cost of production is $100 a tonne and the price of wheat falls to $150 a tonne, you're still making money. Very, very few farmers can tell me what their cost of production is in cents per kilo, cents per kilo of wool, cents per kilo of lamb, cents per kilo of lamb, cents per kilo or, or dollars per tonne of, of whatever crop you're growing. You have to know your cost of production and your cost of production has got to be below that yeah. low line where you, and then when the price is high, if you keep your cost of production down there, you're making a lot of money. When you're, if your cost of production is, is below, um, the lowest price you're likely to receive, you will always make money. And that's what it comes down to, is cost of production. And firstly, you've got to know that. You've got to know what drives it. And two things drive it. Um, one is your cost, and the second is production. And what a lot of people focus on is cost without looking at production. And unfortunately, what we've got in agriculture is this production paradigm where people talk about, you know, I cut so much wool, I've, my yield is X tonnes per hectare, you know, I, my weaning rate's 95%, etc., etc., etc. What we don't talk about is what's the cost to produce that. If, for example, um, you, um, let's say the average production in a district, just to pick a number, might be uh, the if you've got a production focus, you might be aiming for, say, three tonne per hectare of a particular crop, right? Um, but if that costs you $250 a hectare to achieve, then there's quite a small margin. 
If, though, for example, um, you only produce two or two and a half tonnes of that product per hectare, but it costs you $50 a hectare to produce, you're making a lot more money. But the thing that people focus on is production and not the cost of production. Mm. So we've got to change the conversation and we've got to change the way of thinking and get back in and, and forget about all the pub talk about yields and all of those things that people talk about. We've got to get back to gross margins. We've got to get back to cost of production. Um, I, got a, I had a classic example years ago of a, of a bloke um, growing wheat and uh, I'm not sure if I got the numbers right, but the analogy would be pretty right. Um, and he grew a crop of wheat for, I think his cost of production was about $19 per hectare. The average cost in the district was $250 a hectare. The average production in his production group was about two and a half tonnes per hectare. His production was about 2.2 tonnes per hectare. And when they got into the discussion group and started talking, all they talked about was yields. And his yield was lower than everyone else's, so he was sort of poo-hooed a little bit. And he said not one person in that group ever asked him what it cost him to produce that crop. And the interesting thing was the same night after they'd had that discussion group, his agronomist rang him up and said, look, I don't think we need you in our group anymore. Now... If you, um, to me, that, that really signifies the idiocy of just focusing on yields instead of looking at cost of production. And I don't think to this day anyone's ever rang him up and asked him how you produce a, mm. a crop for $19 a hectare. Mm. So we've got to change that paradigm. I think then let's come back to the soil, the other two risks that we've got. The other one is climate, obviously, and rainfall. Yep. And that actually comes right back to, if you're grazing, it comes back to a grazing chart. And knowing your stocking rate and carrying capacity and monitoring those two things in relation to rainfall. So if somebody gives me a stocking rate or carrying capacity that's not related to rainfall, I know it's basic BS. So um, that's how you manage rainfall in a grazing situation. It doesn't matter whether it's sheep or cattle or whatever you're running. Um, in a cropping system, it comes back to soil moisture and being able to monitor how much moisture you've got. Now, one of the things that surprises a lot of people is that the more plants you grow, the more moisture you will store. So there's, uh, if we take a lot of areas where people fallow over summer to store summer rainfall to grow a winter crop, the, the research actually shows that um, if you grow an intermediary crop, and it might be just a short one over summer, to get some living production going in that soil and then to give you ground cover for the rest of summer, the yield of the following winter crop goes up um, and the biology's improved. The carbon starts to go up. The thing that destroys carbon is fallowing, whether that's a bare camp where it's ploughed, whether it's a bare chemical fallow, whatever it is, that's what destroys soils. Um, we've got to get out of that paradigm. We've got to start growing crops and growing things continuously. Um, but it's got to be multi-species. The data is showing that if you, you need a minimum of six to eight species in that fallow period to actually conserve moisture. 
and it's due to then building carbon and, and the biology, which actually holds some of that moisture. It's it's counterintuitive to what yeah. we've learned. Um, the one of the other risks uh, in agriculture then is is pests and diseases. Pests and diseases only attack plants that are unhealthy, that have a low bricks level. We know, for example, that most plants, once the bricks level exceeds 12, they're virtually immune to everything. So it, our, it's our production systems where we're knocking the biology around, we've got poor soil health. Our plants are not fed properly, and fed in the right way. Um, and so they're not balanced. The, the plant can't balance its own uh, chemistry. So we have um, high levels of um, simple sugars and low levels of complex sugars. As that plant complexes its sugars, um, pested diseases can't eat it. And there's a very simple reason for that, is that the digestive tract of insects cannot handle complex sugars. And, and higher level carbohydrates, they so can only handle low level carbohydrates, so or low, you know, simple forms of carbohydrates. Um, so it comes back to immunity in the plant, um, and that immune system, it's exactly like humans. The, the microbiome of the soil, the microbiome of the plant, protects the plant and the soil from pathogens and from diseases, and our own microbiome protects us from the same things. So if we have a weak microbiome and poor gut health, for example, our immune system is shot and we'll end up with all sorts of pests and diseases. Now, Mother Nature's created pests and diseases to take out stuff which shouldn't be in the ecosystem. So let's face it, the more we work with nature and the more we sort those things out, and particularly get our soil health right, some of those risks have disappeared. Uh, Terry, that is brilliant. I have no further questions. That that is it. I'll sum up. I think I'll try and sum up what you just said. Then the three things here is is and I think about this from a from a Top Gun farmer trying to convince an investor or a retiring farmer to back them to own a farm. And what we we often talk about is pitching and convincing someone that you know what you're talking about. And for me, if someone just summarised what you were talking about then, and that was their ethos as a as a Top Gun farmer saying. I know about cost of production and I know how to make money uh, and I know how to make money even at the worst prices, uh, the commodity prices. Two, I know how to build healthy soil because that's the thing that's going to maintain my moisture levels and increase nutrients and, uh, and help my plants to grow. And three, have, I'm going to have healthy plants, uh, which means I don't have as many uh, inputs to, to keep them healthy. Uh, and like if, if a farmer could wrap up that as their pitch to an investor or, or a retiring farmer, I think they'll be on a... <laughs> they give so much confidence that they know what they're talking about and just seems so powerful and, and yeah, relatively simple as well, Terry. But yeah, I love it. I, I haven't heard those risks summarised that way and the mitigation uh, summarised so simply. Um, That's because I'm just a simple person. <laughs> I had a heap of follow-up questions on that one, Terry, but you've answered them well. I'm, I'm comfortable. We've, we've tackled risks now. So I want to move on to best farmers and... I think this ties into our questions just then around soils and, and risks, but I'd love for you to unpack and maybe you can talk about specifics of a, of a farmer and don't have to name names, um, but what are the characteristics of the best farmers when you're driving around? I was thinking about that story you talked about in southern New South Wales, driving around the district and going to this farmer 
who obviously knows what, what they're doing, like what are the characteristics of, a, of the best farmers in the industry that you've worked with that are profitable, uh, that are you know, happy and loving what they're doing? Um, I'd love to unpack that because that's what I want our farmers to be aspiring to is to learn from the very best. I think the first characteristic is that the most successful people continue to seek knowledge. Um, they're they're open-minded, they're prepared to be challenged, um, and they're prepared to change what they're doing. And that also comes back to knowledge. Um, My belief, though, is that there is so much knowledge out there at the moment that you need to filter for it. You need to be able to filter that. Well, there's not necessarily knowledge. There's, there's, you know, there's knowledge, there's information, um, and then there's wisdom. And, and I think that um, how do we take the information age and create wisdom? And uh, one of the things I learned from Professor Stuart Hill, which I've never ever forgotten, and Stuart talks about um, there is simplicity and there is complexity, which is Mother Nature is extremely complex. Um, and then there's what's called profound simplicity. And profound simplicity is the other side of complexity. In other words, we don't need to understand the complexity of Mother Nature. We need to understand the profound simplicities that Mother Nature offers us. And it is pretty simple. Add carbon to your soil and everything fixes up. Um, Stop poisoning her and she'll come back and help you out. there's, There's a lot of profound simplicities that we understand. And the second filter that I use is principles. You know, if if the knowledge of the information that's being peddled doesn't fit fundamental principles, then it's not right. So I use those principles as filters. Um, I think so, so knowledge, seeking knowledge and... Uh, the second step is actually using that knowledge. The people who are successful are the ones who actually take new paradigms and new knowledge and implement it. They do something with it. And they might do something small scale to begin with. Um, you know, uh, start small, fail early type of approach. Because when you're doing something new, it's pretty easy to fail. But those failures, I think, are learning experiences. Pretty well all the wisdom and the knowledge that I've picked up over a long time from a lot of very, very wise people has come about from the mistakes they've made. It's not what you get right that you learn from, it's what you get wrong that you learn from most. And I think making mistakes or having learning experiences, I don't think we should talk about mistakes. It's only a mistake if you do the same thing three times and get it wrong three times. But if you, you know, if you're doing something for the first time and you learn from that, um, that's a learning experience, not a mistake. Um, so testing, trialing, um, having the numbers. So um, if you're testing out your stocking rate to carrying capacity, for example, the only way you can test whether your benchmark carrying capacity is actually correct is with the records and have the numbers, have the grazing chart, and then test that every year. So, you know, one of Savory's philosophies is uh, when you make a decision, assume you're wrong. 
And I think that's a when you're dealing with nature and you're dealing with testing things, um, assume you're wrong, and that'll make you look and concentrate on what you've done and concentrate on the outcomes. Um, so learning, doing, testing, um, keeping numbers, doing the numbers, knowing your profitability, knowing your numbers, being able to quote things like your cost of production, being able to quote your gross margins per hectare, per, per LSU, DSE, etc. Being able to know what your cost of production is, know where the strengths are in your business, know where the weaknesses are in your business and know how to analyse that. Um, I think, um, and I don't think any of that, the difference between very successful people and non-successful people has anything to do with intelligence. It has to do with, with willingness to have an open mind, have a go, get on and do stuff. Um, and all the people that um, that I've seen and worked with over a long period of time that have been very successful also had a lot of faith. And they had faith in the decisions they made and they had faith in the direction they were going in. And I think that's one of the really exciting things about regenerative ag. Um, in grazing, it's all pretty well known stuff. You know, we know how to do that pretty well there. Um, but in the cropping arenas, when you're converting from an industrial system of farming to a biological system of farming, that transition period is not so well known. Um, and there's a whole lot of options in the middle. And the biggest fear that most people have is um, what I call the valley of death, which is that bit uh, between those two points. Um, and it doesn't actually exist. Everyone I've spoken to, everyone I know that's made that transition says it doesn't exist, but it is the biggest fear that most people have, mm. is that you start pulling out these inputs which have been ingrained in your brain that you must have, and you start taking them out. You think that the system's going to collapse. But Mother Nature's systems are a lot smarter than that. They don't collapse, and they're easy, relatively easy to transition. Um, so basically, and having faith that you can move from one spot to another and knowing the basic principles to do that. Um, I think if I, if I sum those up really, really quickly, it is seeking, continuing to seek knowledge in all sorts of ways. Um, it's doing stuff about that learning. A lot of people go and learn stuff but don't do anything about it. Um, it's testing what you do so you know what your outcomes are from doing what you're doing um, and having the numbers to do that. It's understanding your business. And if I was probably to add one more thing, it's um, maybe two more things. It's knowing where you're going. It's having a really clear vision of what it is you're wanting to create, how you want to live your life, and how you want to structure your business to provide that lifestyle and uh, those goals for you. Terry, I was thinking you'd be talking about uh, these farmers have great soil health, uh, that uh, their paddock uh, ratios are amazing. You talked about none of that. You were talking about these are just sound business concepts that make people to be great farmers. That that gives that's really encouraging. I think this is, uh, and this is what we encourage with our 
our farmers is that this is about being professionals. This is about uh, operating businesses and your farm at a high level. And everything you talked about there is about planning, having a vision, having confidence in yourself uh, and being deliberate, but also having that open mind to, to learn. And, uh, and I think that one around uh, assuming you're wrong, that uh, I was confronted by that. Um, that's probably a mentality I need to have more of, but uh, I can see where you're coming from there. It's it's uh, if you're assuming you're wrong, you are open to testing and adjusting uh, versus no, I know what I'm doing, I know exactly what I'm doing, and and you 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 might miss out on those opportunities or or uh, chances to fix things up that uh, you could get onto if you if you had that mentality. Put it this way: um, your soils and your plants and your animals don't make management decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so what makes a good business um, and a successful person is good decision making, and that comes back to people issues. And it's all about people. Like it's 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 good relationships and um, effective people make an effective business. So, what about from an aspiring farmer point of view? Um, Terry, so we're, we're trying to get these top gun farmers um, and convince investors to back them and retiring farmers to back them. What have you seen in the, in the, in the very best young farmers who don't have those years of experience and knowledge in, in running a business? And I'm, most of ours have been doing that, um, but they just don't have the, the years under their belt. What are the things you see in, and, and would give you confidence, say, if you're a retiring farmer or an investor, what are the things that you would want to see um, in those farmers for you to back them? And is it just a, a, a composite of everything we've talked about there in terms of being the best farmer? It's, is that what you, what would you want to see? Uh, for me, um, if I was wanting to hand my farm over to them, the first thing I would want to know is what experience do they have and what have they done about getting that experience. Um, if they've not gone and worked in agriculture, I'd be pretty concerned yep. because they've probably got this dream about what it's like without any reality to that dream. Um, and and there's a lot of work involved and you've got to be prepared to put that work in. Um, that would be the first thing. So if they demonstrated to me that they'd gone off and they'd worked in for five or ten years for other people and they'd, you know, and they'd tried a few different things and they'd ended up in fairly good positions um, and maybe even managed something for somebody else, um, then that says to me that they they're in they're able to make decisions. They know how much work's involved. They can go and fix a pump. They can put up a fence. They can be um, you know hear whether a tractor's running properly or not. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that goes on around you in agriculture that's intuitive. And unless you've got you know some background and some experience in it, that you um, just won't pick up yeah. on you know some of the stuff that's going around there, and um, so I think that's that'll be the first thing. Um, and then what have they done about educating themselves at a higher level and basic farm running skills? So the sort of things that we just talked about, um, and if they've been prepared to invest in their own education, mm-hmm. and I don't mean university education. I mean there's a lot of really good education out there that's not university-based um, or college-based, but self-help stuff and, and really um, and self-improvement. And what work have they done on themselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of programs and courses and things that people can do to really 
improve their own mind and improve their own attitude uh, so that every day is a good day, you know, and that's a choice we, we make every day. When we wake up, we choose whether it's going to be a good day or a bad day. Mm. And um, I want that sort of attitude where somebody wakes up every day and chooses for it to be a good day and they've done enough work on themselves to know the difference um, and have some basic skills. And I think um, I'd back them with those, you know, the, the hands-on experience on the land and then have done their, a fair bit of self-improvement work on themselves um, and have a really good dream and vision of what they want to achieve. So that's the driver, the thing that gets you out of bed every day, the thing that gets you through the fact when it's not raining and you're losing money or whatever it is, um, or you have a hailstorm come through and wipes out your crop. Those, those, those things happen. Um, and you've got to... Um, be resilient um, to those sort of effects. So, um, to me, it's all about the people. That's great. And as you're talking, Terry, I'm, I'm uh, and I've been thinking about this a lot over the last few years. And I've been thinking about our first farm that we matched, which is Freeland Pork, and thinking around why we matched them with an investor and why this investor wanted to back them. And I think it's because of those three things you talked about: is that they've been out there for years working on farms, jackaroo, jillarooing. And then they had they had a lease established where they're growing their own pigs and putting their own money and their own skin yeah. on the yeah. line uh, to show they know how to handle money. And then if that if they, if they were going to handle somebody else's money, they're going to do a good job in it. So is that proving? They um, yeah. also had mentoring, so they paid money monthly to have someone pull them apart, <laughs> pull their vision apart, pull them apart, and 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 help them with that. Um, um, uh, cost of production, understanding that, that was a key thing as well. Yep. And their vision is they're just pumped up, inspired entrepreneurs who want to grow the best meat and, and sell to their, to their customers. Those three things, I think, are so key. And, I, and, I, and I've been, again, reflecting on this for many years. It's, you think about if you're in that position, like you just talked about then, being a retiring farmer or an investor, and you've got your money that you've earned and to spend time making or you've got your farm that you've spent generations building and someone's coming to you saying, hey, I think I'm worthy uh, of you sharing that with me. And to think about it from those point of view, like, well, yeah, have you tried? Have you had your own skin in the game? Are you continuing learning? And uh, and do you are you in this for the long haul? Have, where's your vision? I, yeah, I think you've summed it up again really well, Terry. They're the, they're the things we encourage our farmers to be thinking about and, and proving and, and demonstrating they want this. Yeah, and, and I think the one I missed that you picked up on there was having a go. They proved that they're prepared to have a go with their own money and uh, I meant to say that but missed it, so thanks for picking up that one. It's a good one. I tied it in with yours, Terry. It's all good, mate. There is. I have a big list of more questions, but I think we should wrap it up there because I think there's a nice little package of, of questions. I'd love to unpack with you more regional communities, what we, our vision for agriculture and, and farming and also retiring farmers in, in another catch-up if you'll, if you'll let me, Terry, but... Uh, I have loved that. We're going to uh, create little snippets out of this and share it and get this wisdom out because I think everyone should be hearing what you're saying. It's, it's brilliant, mate, and I really do appreciate you generously giving of this knowledge uh, and I encourage farmers out there to listen to this on repeat uh, and, uh, and get your head in the right space because we want you to succeed. We want to get the best people onto farms. We want farmers making lots of money and doing good for the land. And uh, Terry, thank you very much, mate, and hopefully we'll speak soon. Thank you, Sam. Cheers, Have mate. Have a good day. 
Thanks for your attention. We know there are thousands of other things you could be doing or other podcasts you could be listening to, but you've chosen to listen to us. We appreciate your time so much. Please reach out uh, as we're happy to work through your farm ownership pathway with you. Let's get you farming.